Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in our bulletin or on our website if you're joining us online. You'll find the text, all one verse, on the back of the insert if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, we transition this morning in the book of James to the final section, the closing exhortations, I believe. And we have one verse, and yet I will admit to you, this verse has given me more difficulty. I've had to do more shovel and spade work and thinking through things than many others in James. Um, I, I think it's significant. I think it's worth our consideration. I'd like to begin by reading James 5.12. Over word of prayer, and we will dive in. James 5.12. But above all, my brothers... Do not swear, either by heaven, or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Lord God, as we look at these short lines, this one verse in your word, I believe there is much here for us. Give us the grace to understand. As those who believe the truth, love the truth, follow the one who is the truth. Let us be a people of truth in our speech to each other and to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the breakdown of the text itself, I think, is pretty straightforward. You've got a, here are your first blanks if you want them, a prohibition, don't do something, namely don't swear make oaths. Um, and then in classic New Testament fashion, the put off, the put on, but rather you have an admonition, speak plain and simple truth. And then he gives us a motivation. Why? That you may not fall under condemnation. So basic structure of this verse, don't do this. Instead, do this because of this, right? So let's begin by looking at the prohibition. Do not swear or make Oaths. Now, let me begin by making some clarifications. Swear in English might have the notion of coarse or foul language. That's not what's in view here at all. I think James uses the word do not swear and oath pretty interchangeably. And what an oath or swearing by someone is, is to appeal to something outside of yourself, usually a deity, usually God, although I think we'll see some other examples, to add surety, certainty, veracity to your words. So if you're making an oath, you would swear by, usually your God. You could swear by other things. And there can also be an implication of retribution. May, may the God I am swearing by, my God, may he punish me if I'm, I'm speaking ill. Or if you're swearing by your head or your gold or your possessions, may I lose those things. May I forfeit them if I'm lying. It's basically the idea. So, so swearing or oath-making is appealing to yourself, appealing to something outside of yourself, usually God, not always, but usually God, to add strength, certainty, veracity to your words, usually to persuade someone you're speaking to that you're telling the truth. That's, that's what he means by swear or make an oath. Um, so the prohibition, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let's begin, though, with the very beginning here, but above all. Now, this is, this is problematic. Uh, what are we taking above all to mean? It would seem strange in the epistle to James if he's saying this specific teaching on oath-making is above 
Faith without works being dead. It's above partiality. It's above the teaching on wisdom from below. It's above per, um, enduring and persevering. I, I don't think that's what's in view. I think James is using this phrase similar to how Peter uses this phrase to transition to the final set of exhortations. And finally, almost. It does bridge. There is some connection to what came before in chapter 5. If you remember in chapter 5, there's rebuke to the rich and then an encouragement to the majority of the church who are poor, suffering, to suffer well, not to grumble, not to fight amongst themselves, but to wait patiently for the Lord. It's possible that in such situations, poor people may be tempted to make oaths. Some have suggested for the idea of obtaining food, resources, which they wouldn't be able to keep. That's possible. But I think that above all, better suits the notion of transitioning to the final sets of exhortations about how to endure and wait for the Lord's return. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, those who are languishing and ill, calling for the elders into the final section of James. So my, my answer is that above all is a bridge and transition to the closing set of exhortations in the book, which then gets to the prohibition itself. Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Now, on surface value, this is a pretty straightforward teaching. And when I first came to this text, that's what I was expecting. I mean, and if you take James purely at surface level, what he's saying is, hey, guys, why do you need to make oaths? Why do you need to swear? Why isn't it good enough to simply say yes or no? Why do you need anything more than that? And that's the case. It's pretty straightforward. However, it gets more complicated than that. The first is this. We, we, as we've gone through the epistle of James, we've noted many points where James has been teaching or reteaching the content of his older half-brother, Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount. This is the clearest example of him doing that. This is almost a verbatim quote. In fact, turning your Bibles to Matthew 5, your next blank, this is a re-implementation of Jesus' teaching. So James has, I think, at about 20 to 25 points already been echoing the teaching of Jesus, but this is the clearest example of that. This is the clearest example of it. I don't think he's quoting Matthew, because I don't think Matthew was written when James wrote, but I think it's entirely possible James is quoting verbatim, or partially verbatim, the, the well-known teaching of Jesus. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount and its content was repeated? Luke has it in eight on a plane. Likely Jesus taught the content of that sermon in many places. For those who lived in Jesus' day, for those who had heard him, the content of the Sermon on the Mount would most likely be the most memorable, the most well-known. And if you compare Matthew in the Greek with James in the Greek, there are many exact wordings so this is the strongest and the clearest reteaching of Jesus' teaching. And so you can see that first in Matthew 5, 33 to 37, if you're there. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard it said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. That, that command, do not take an oath, exact same verb as James's, do not swear word for word. Do not make an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, that's the example James uses, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So there are some distinctions. James, I mean, Jesus in this text gives four things not to swear by. James gives two, but the two James gives are exactly examples Jesus uses. Jesus gives further reasoning why. And the only other difference would be James says not to do it lest we fall under condemnation. And Jesus says not to do it for anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. But this is the most direct quotation of Jesus James has. Now, if you turn to Matthew 23, Jesus speaks about this again. And I think Matthew 23 is going to be helpful in understanding what's going on. Because again, if you just looked at Matthew 5, you might think, why are you making this complicated, Pastor Jeremy? It's really simple. Jesus says, don't make oaths. Just say yes, just say no. And there are denominations and sects in Christianity that have taken that. The Anabaptists, some of the Mennonites, won't swear in court but, but think of the implications if we take this to be a total prohibition. And perhaps it is. We should consider that. No wedding vows. No oaths of service in the military or public service. No, no giving testimony in a court of law. No oaths. Just yes or no. And then you're going to start thinking about things like, well, things that you have to sign, contracts, we need witnesses. Are those oaths? Now, if that's what our Lord says, that's what we need to do. It's not the matter of the fact that it's potentially extreme, but I do want you to recognize if Jesus and James mean the plain surface teaching what they're saying, without exception, it's going to have some radical impact for our lives. Um, so that's, that's the first point. Let's look at Matthew 23, 16 to 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Jesus is very seeker sensitive. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift on the altar that the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and whom who dwells in it. And whoever swears by uh, heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So those are Jesus' two dealings with oaths. And I think Matthew 23 is going to help us with Matthew 5. And so my rationale, my logic is this. You'll know that I normally I, I want to insist that James can be understood on his own terms. And I think he can. But when James is clearly citing, and I think this is the clearest place where he does, another source citing Jesus, then I think it's completely valid to go back, what does Jesus mean? And then assume that whatever Jesus means, that's what James means in citing Jesus. So that's why I think it's worth looking at our time in, and looking at Jesus. Now, next... Let me show you the difficulty we have with Paul's youth use of oaths. Paul's use of oaths. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, the reason why I don't think it'll work that we simply say Jesus and James are blanketly prohibiting any and all oaths, just say yes, just say no, is if that's what you conclude, we have to condemn Paul. At least four times in Paul's writings, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes I, what are oaths. I don't think there's anywhere around it. I'll read them to you, and you can look at one of them. So while you're turning to 2 Corinthians 1, let me read to you Romans 1, 9. 
For God is my witness, who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you. For God is my witness. I'm appealing to God to add veracity. He can testify. He can verify what I'm saying. 2 Corinthians 1.23 But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Galatians 1.20 In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Philippians 1.8 For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is why I started banging my head against the wall midweek because as, as nice as it would be, as simple as it would be to simply say, here's, here's Jesus and James teaching. Christians just say yes, no. There's no need to buttress your words. There's no need to add anything on. But then you get to Paul. Why, Paul, why couldn't you just say, it was to spare you that I didn't come. Why do you have to say, I call God as witness against me? Whatever Paul is doing under the inspiration of the Spirit is right and is good. And so it, it complicates things. When you see the potential problems, the, what then is Jesus saying? What is James saying? We don't want to condemn Paul in doing this. It's also an example of an angel making an oath in Revelation 10, but I won't read that. And we know God himself makes oaths. Of course, God could operate on a different set of rules than we could, but the, the point being, it is godly, because God does it to make an oath. Okay? So that's Paul's use of oaths. Which then, I think, insists that we go back to small Testament background. So if you follow the rationale of what I'm doing, looking at James, we notice that James is citing Jesus. We notice the, the difficulty of, we've got to factor Paul in. Whatever Paul's doing is right and good. Now I'd like to go back and, and look a little bit at the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy 6, please. I'll try not to have you jump around too much. But Deuteronomy 6. I'm just going to make three points in the Old Testament. Um, that'll help, I think, clear this up. And in Deuteronomy 6, 13, we read the following. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name you shall swear. Turn a page or two to Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. So the Old Testament law, and I know we're not into the law, but the Old Testament law off explicitly authorizes oaths being made in the name of the Lord. But more than that, they tell you this is the name you're to swear in. So your first blank, oaths were to be made by the name of the Lord. And the first thing I want to observe is this. Apparently, the Jews of Jesus' day weren't making oaths by the name of the Lord. Certainly, Jesus and James don't address that. Jesus addresses oaths made by heaven, by the earth, by Jerusalem, by the temple, by the altar, by the gold in the temple. We'll come to that. That's the first thing to note, is that God gave the Israelites one name to swear an oath by. His name. That's the first point. Second, you don't need to turn there, but you could just say from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy isn't telling you to make oaths. Deuteronomy is just saying, if you're going to make an oath, here's how you're going to do it. It's true. But there's at least one instance in the law where oaths are not optional, but mandatory. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read to you Exodus chapter 22, 10 through 11. 
The law of Moses is, covers so many different um, what-ifs. And here's Exodus 22, 10 to 11. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath to the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. So to summarize, if, if, if I lend you, or if, you, if I pay you to care for you know, 10 or 12 of my sheep and I come back a week later to pick them up and there's only eight and you say, sorry, four of them ran away. Uh, that's kind of shady. What do we do? And we know under the law, you need the testimony of two or three witnesses to confirm things. Well, I just got his word against this. The law is, states what is to happen. So we're, we're to make an oath to the Lord, that the man who received and is telling me my sheep ran away. And what's happening is God's saying, if he's lying, I'll deal with him. And I need to accept that. That, that needs to satisfy me. And so if you called the elders, you called the priests in to help deal with this dispute, they would say, okay, you make the oath. It's, it's not optional. It's mandatory. Make, swear by the Lord what you're saying is true, that the sheep ran away. And then I would need to accept that oath and be satisfied because God is basically saying, I will deal with this. I will adjudicate. I only make that point to make it clear. You can't simply say, like you can with, with Moses and divorce, as Jesus said, Moses said this, he, he permitted it because of your hardness of heart. You, you could argue, well, oaths are permitted. Well, there's at least one instance where under the law of Moses, oaths are mandatory. Okay? So, you're blank at times, such oaths are mandatory. Point three, oaths were extremely serious and sacred. Oaths were extremely serious and sacred. I'm just going to read to you some of these texts. Because you make your oath by the name of the Lord, blasphemy, a capital offense, a death penalty issue, is attached to oath-making if it's done wrongly. Exodus 20, verse 7, from the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers, 20, Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what passes your lips. If you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth, one of the character traits of a righteous person. What if you make a commitment or give a promise and it turns out that's going to cost you far more than you thought? Psalm 15, verse 4. Who is the righteous man? One in whose eyes a vile person is detested, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I'll skip over Ecclesiastes. Just how seriously does God take a vow in his name, an oath by his word? Uh, I can give you two examples. The example of Jephthah, who utters an absolutely foolish vow. But I, I got an even better one, I think. Um, 
If you remember in Joshua chapter 9, but you don't need to turn there, please do turn, by the way, to uh, 2 Samuel 21. In Joshua chapter 9, Joshua and the nation of Israel are taking possession of the land, and they are laying waste to the different tribes. They, they've already taken out Ai, they've taken out Jericho. The word of them, we know this from Rahab, is spreading throughout the land. The people's spirits tremble at the sound of it. And the Lord God has commanded Joshua and his people not to enter into any sort of peace treaty with the inhabitants of the land. This is judgment on them. We know this from back from Abraham. When he says, you guys are to spend some time in Egypt so that the sin of the Ammonites might be filled up. And so God is using Israel as his righteous tool of judgment on the inhabitants of Canaan. So Joshua is not to enter into priest treaties. Well, there's a group of, of people there, the Gibeonites, who come up with a plan. They get some moldy bread, and they get some worn-out sandals, and they come up and they completely lie to and deceive Joshua. They pretend that they are from far, far away. And they say, please make a peace treaty with us. And the text in Joshua 9 is clear. Joshua does not consult the Lord, but he and the elders readily enter into a peace treaty with them. They, they make an oath by the name of the Lord. So, so I want you to get this. They're lied to and deceived. They only make the oath because they were lied to and deceived. And yet God requires them to keep it. But let that sink in. Would God expect me to keep my word that was given under false pretenses? Yes. To what degree? Second Samuel. Turn to Second Samuel 21. Remarkable passage. Verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Saul broke the oath made hundreds of years before, which I think is binding to Saul because Saul at the time is sitting in the seat as king of Israel. So whatever treaties, whatever agreements Israel has made in the past, is, he's bound to. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. You can picture the argument. Those rapscallions deceived us. They lied to us. They tricked us. They made us look stupid. We'll show you what happens to those people who lie and deceive us. And he struck them down, tried to do away with them. And the Lord judges Israel for this. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us. And Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So they, they require lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. 
just as Saul tried to destroy our house and do away with us, and in part succeeded, the punishment would be, let us do away with his house. Let us take his descendants and kill them, which is what exactly happens. Um, and I only cite this to just to indicate the seriousness of oaths in the Old Testament. There is none of this, well, I didn't mean it, or... Psych, just kidding. You made an oath by the Lord. You keep it to your harm. You're tricked and deceived into making your oath. You keep it to your harm. And the Lord God brought a famine for three years. You can imagine how many Israelites died in that famine because the solemn oath was broken. So three points. Oaths were made to be made in the name of the Lord. At times, they're mandatory, and oaths were extremely serious and sacred, which then I think helps bring us to what's going on with James and Jesus' teaching. Um, I'll try to be quick here. If you turn back to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. It appears as though the Jews of Jesus' day, for fear of committing blasphemy, would not make oaths by the name of the Lord. What if, what if we say an oath incorrectly, isn't weighty enough. There's a, there's a clear reluctance of the Jews of Jesus' day to use the divine name Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, what we, is Lord in all caps. Uh, it's, it's reasonable to think Matthew even avoids using some of those terms for fear of, to not unnecessarily provoke his readers. He keeps talking about the kingdom of heaven as opposed to the kingdom of God. And so, as best as we can reconstruct it, the Jews of Jesus' day, and remember, James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, had stopped making oaths by the name of the Lord as they were commanded to, and would instead make oaths by sacred things. Um, but what that then allowed them to do, and if you're in Matthew 23, you can see this, is by, by having a variety of things you could swear by, well, who's to say that they're all of equal force? Some things you swore by might be more mandatory to keep you than other things are less important, and that's okay. I mean, that's exactly what's going on. Matthew 23, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, these are the Pharisees and the scribes, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. You can swear by the temple, and you don't have to keep your word. But... If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. So you see, and here's your first blank, oaths had become a clever and wicked means to justify lying. You just make different rules. Kids do this. It's really obvious when kids are just crossing my fingers. But it's the same idea. And if somebody doesn't know what the recent rabbis have decided is an object that requires oath-keeping or not, then you can make a very impressive-sounding oath. I swear by the temple of God in Jerusalem. I don't have to keep it. Now, if I swore by the goal, that'd be totally different. You know? And so the rules can change, and it just becomes not, it's, it's putting it on its head. Deuteronomy makes it clear, you swear by the Lord, and the Lord makes it clear, that is a serious thing. 
He's not going to deal with it lightly. He will not hold guiltless the one who breaks his oath to the Lord. And now, oaths have become a clever, wicked way to justify lying. Because remember, and here's our next point, this is how Jesus refused them. They think they're getting around the prohibition. But Jesus insists all oaths ultimately are sworn by the Lord. I want you to see that in Matthew 26. Look at this. Um, Verse 21, whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. Ooh, you thought you weren't swearing by anything important when you swore by the temple, but whose glory resides in the temple? That's right, you're swearing by the Lord. Back to Matthew 5, where this is even more clearly insisted upon. Matthew 5, 33, you've heard it said... To those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven. Why not? It's the throne of God. Oh, you don't want to swear by the Lord? So you're going to swear by heaven instead? Guess what you've done? You've sworn by God. Or swear by the earth. Why not? It's his footstool. Still God's stuff you're swearing by. Or by Jerusalem. I'll swear by Jerusalem. There we go. It's the city of the great king. And what you find out when you think about it is you can't swear by anything that isn't the Lord's. Even your own head, you can't make a hair turn white or black, much to my chagrin. Because it's God's head. I swear by my honor, my honor exists before the Lord. Whatever oath you make, whatever you want to name, you are in fact swearing by the Lord. If you think it through, that's Jesus' argument. You fools. You haven't evaded swearing by the Lord. You've just trivialized it. And so then I think Jesus and James's prohibition is that we must not engage in this wicked practice. And I think what remains an option that we see Paul use is there still remains, if you need to, if it thinks appropriate, I'm not entirely sure what the times and places would be to make an oath. I think it's still lawful, and the law of Moses still goes to swear by the Lord, your God which is exactly what Paul does. I'll, I'll read them to you again. Romans 1.9, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.23, I call God to witness against me. Galatians 1.20, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all. So I, I don't think Jesus is contravening what Moses says. Uh, I think Paul is showing us there's still maybe times and places by which to to invoke God's name. Um, But certainly what we must not do, and this is, I think, the real rebuke, is we must not um, allow ourselves to have varying grades of truthfulness. Which brings us to our next point, the admonition. The admonition, speak plain and simple truth. Let your yes be yes. And your no be no. Uh, first point, all our speech should be given at oath strength. All our speech should be given at oath strength. That, that's the, the clear teaching of Jesus. He insists every careless word will be given an account for. That if you, the, the danger with oath making, the bad form of oath making is to think, if I don't promise, if I don't make an oath, well then it doesn't really count. And that's wicked. If we're, if we're utilizing these things in which to try to get varying grades of truthfulness, you can't hold me to that. 
I didn't swear. I didn't sign anything. I've heard someone say to me once, but something they said, it's not in writing. All of that's wicked. Um, we, we need to speak the truth simply, plainly. All our speech should be given to those strength. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1, a little before Paul makes his oath there, he responds to the challenge that he had told them he was going to come visit them, and he didn't. I'll, I'll read it to you. Um, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In fact, a few verses later is precise when he says, I call God to witness against me. It was in order to spare you that I didn't come. The point I want to make is this. The fact that Paul feels it necessary to defend himself indicates he legitimizes the concern that your simple yes and your no, Paul, weren't true. In other words, Paul's defense of why he didn't come makes it clear. Paul understands simply saying, I'm going to do this obligates you to be a truth speaker. Now, he says there's a reason it didn't happen, but, but his defense legitimates the expectation. They were right to expect Paul to speak plainly, to speak simply, to say yes or no and not yes, no. And, and he has to explain why he was unable to come. All our speech should be given at oath strength, which, of course, then means we should probably speak a lot less. <laughs> be a lot more thoughtful about how we speak. And, and this is perfectly in keeping with James, right? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go here or there. I, just, I was just speaking casually off the hip of plan. Where, and next year we're going to go to Greece and we're going to go over here, we're going to do this. Oh, you're very mighty and powerful. You're a vapor. And, and so when we speak, we, we need to give consideration. Am I, am I recognizing the sovereignty of God, or am I speaking like a sovereign? Likewise, am I speaking the actual truth? Or am I exaggerating, embellishing? So the, the put-on is, is plain, simple, truth-speaking. All our speech should be taken to those strengths. Truth must be spoken plainly without, here's your blank, embellishment. Without embellishment. Without exaggeration. And you know this, the people who are constantly saying, come on, trust me, you don't trust, right? You know that. Someone saying, no, no, trust me, trust me. Someone who's constantly saying, no, I'm not lying, I'm not even lying. It's probably someone who lies a fair amount, probably. Because typically it's dishonest people who are suspicious and don't trust people, and usually it's honest people who tend to just trust people, because we assume generally people are going to be like us, generally. There are exceptions. Truth should be spoken plain without embellishment. Let me give you a Proverbs. Proverbs 18.4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters, and the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. And the contrast is pretty straightforward. Deep water is a picture of murkiness and inaccessibility. If you've ever been in a boat on a lake and try to look over the edge of the boat, see what's on the bottom of the lake, and you're not sure, is that a rock? Is that a big clump of algae? It's a treasure chest. Well, what is it? You can't tell. It's deep water. It's murky. It's inaccessible. 
In contrast to that deep murkiness is a bubbling brook. Now take that picture of speech. There are people whose speech is deep waters. You know what this is like. People who, were they, were they, were they insulting me? You ever think, like, were you, was this person, what is, you're not entirely sure if someone just insulted you or not? People who speak in innuendo. The Bible would say, who wink with the eye, who point with the foot. There's a famous skit, you know, just, just, just kidding. Nothing, no, 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 no. Are you insinuating something? No, no, never. Yes. Wisdom's a bubbling brook. Wise, good speech is clear, obvious. This should be the standard, the norm for us. I want to speak plainly. I want to speak in a way that's easy to be understood. I want to speak the truth in a plain, simple, unadorned fashion. This is the type of speech that should characterize the people of God. Point C. Because as those who love the truth and follow one who is the truth, we must be committed to speak the truth at all times. And consider that. Why do unbelievers perish? We could say unbelievers perish because they do not turn and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true. According to 2 Thessalonians 2.10, another way of describing why they perish, those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, because, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth and the way and the life, right? So they, they perish because they don't trust in Jesus. They perish because they don't love the truth. So we, we need to love the truth or we perish. Our God, amazingly, people talk about God can do anything. I'll tell you one thing he can't do. Hebrews 6.18, by two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. Rightly speaking, God can do anything he wants to do. He has no unfulfilled desires. But, but it is not true to say God can do anything. Timothy, in uh, 2 Timothy, he cannot deny himself. There's not many things the Bible says God can't do, but here's one. It's impossible for God to lie. Impossible. So if the God we serve cannot lie... If the Savior we trust in is the truth, then truthfulness needs to be our hallmark. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. James then moves on to give us a motivation, a motivation to avoid falling under condemnation. Now again, sometimes Christians get squeamish with this. What do you mean condemnation, James? We're forgiven. There's now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not the first time James has referenced judgment. Turn back to chapter 2. Why should we not be engaged in the sin of partiality, giving the best seats to the biggest purses? Pick it up in verse 8. Chapter 2. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're here today 
You've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have turned from whatever other gods you are serving and your sin, and you have bowed the knee to King Jesus. You are trusting in him. You will never stand before God's legal court where the judgment and the balance of heaven and hell are at stake. But according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There will still be reckonings and rewards and judgments. Paul speaks about some who escape as though singed by fire in 1 Corinthians 3. And so recognition and keeping in mind there, there will be a reckoning. There will be an accounting. Jesus is insistent. Every idle word spoken. In fact, let me read that passage in Matthew 12, 34 to 37. Um, don't, don't just ignore the warning lest we fall into condemnation. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Which means if untruth and exaggeration and falsehood is what is coming out of your mouth, guess what's in your heart? Out of the abundance of the mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure, brings forth good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Oh, I didn't think. I didn't really mean it. I wasn't serious. I didn't sign anything. I didn't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation tell you on the day of judgment people give an account for every careless word they speak for by your words you'll be justified and by your words you will be condemned our words reveal our hearts our words reveal our hearts the christian will face god's judgment our words reveal our hearts and finally and i do intend to sing our closing song our words reveal the reality of our faith turn, turn back to james chapter 1 Remember months ago when we were here, I, I suggested to you that James's overarching theme and purpose is to show the necessity of, by faith, relying on God's wisdom, persevering in trial, bearing the fruit of good works. James is insistent that the scattered believers must persevere by faith, relying on God's wisdom, bearing good works in trial. And that he has three spheres or domains that he's most concerned to evaluate our perseverance and our good works. And they're the sphere of our tongue, how we relate to wealth and poverty, and the world, worldliness. And he brings this to a head in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. If any, 26 is just striking. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, what does he do, James? But deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James spends the better part of a chapter in chapter 3 dealing with the tongue. He's very concerned with how our words reveal our faith. Let me just read to you very quickly. Why, why is lying, dishonesty, deception, why should that not mark us? Because it speaks of a different father and a different family. This is what Jesus said to the Jews who had believed on him in John 8. 
You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I heard one author paraphrases, when Satan lies, he's speaking his native tongue. And so we evidence whose children we are by what character we exhibit. Our God cannot lie. His son is the truth. He sanctifies us in truth. His word is truth. And truth, simple, plain truth, should characterize our interactions. It should be our hallmark. Conversely, if a forked or twisted tongue marks us, it may suggest that we have a different parentage or members of a different family. So, let us not be embellishing our words constantly looking to strengthen our speech. No, 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 you can really trust me now because I double dog swore. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. And live as people and speak as people. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and take, take him at his words. Let's speak the truth and love to one another. This is how the body of Christ builds itself up. Let's have a word of closing prayer and then we'll sing our closing song. Lord God, Guard us from unrighteous uses of our tongue. Um, guard us from the temptation to play games with words, to, to, to justify lying and deception. But let us, like you, be unable to lie. Let us, like you, speak the truth. Let our words be life-giving. Let us keep our words, even to our hurt. Let us be people of the truth. It is by your truth that you have saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.